What do you think of when I use the word worldly or worldliness? What first comes to your mind? The psalmist in Psalm chapter 1 portrays worldliness as a gradual fall. And we'll see that in that text. Before we do that though, somebody's got a remote and I gotta have one. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Psalm chapter 1. Let's notice that together just briefly uh, before we get into our, our segment of our lesson this morning. You notice how this psalm talks, it describes to us, talks about a slowdown to listen, then it talks about standing still to observe, and then it finally talks about sitting down to fully partake or embrace, becoming fully engulfed in what is described here as worldliness. It doesn't use that word, but it certainly does define it for us. What it results in, and uh, the, the, uh, the opposite of that. There is another kind of person this text describes who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, this is the one who listens deeply to what God has to say. This is the one who responds with a heart of holiness rather than worldliness to the message and the goodness of God. And that is who you and I, we want to be, as evidenced by the very fact that we're here this morning in worship to this great God. So good morning to you. Hope that you've already enjoyed the, uh, the morning so far and that you have your mind, your heart in the right place already this morning after the songs we've sung and even more importantly, I think, the, uh, uh, the meditation that we've done around the Lord's table. All of that, the prayers that we have entered into already today, all of this makes for wonderful worship, but it also makes for biblical worship, and that's what's important to the Lord. Therefore, it's important to us to perform in a way that the Lord desires. And I don't mean perform in the sense of acting, but the way that we carry out what God wants from the heart. That's awfully important to the Lord, and it's great to have everybody here this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll turn over there, if you're not already there, we'll be there in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, and if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, maybe you don't own a Bible, uh, that'll be uh, made available to you there in the pew in front of you. So get one of those and turn to page 1196, 1196, that'll be Hebrews chapter 12. And if you're a guest with us, we certainly welcome you, want you to be here. Hope that you already know that. If you don't know that, then just stick around a minute or two after. We'd be delighted to come to know you a little better and you know us and have a nice, warm hospitality welcome to you. Uh, we'd like to become better acquainted with any who are interested in us. And, uh, and if you are looking for a place to, to call your, your home or your family, to work and worship together as a people of God. Talk to us more about that. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome everybody that's joining us online as well this morning. Don't want to leave you out and know that we're glad to have you also. Good to see everybody today. 
So Hebrews chapter 12 here begins with the image of our running a race. And just let's get our minds revamped to the point of this text. Just really quick and really briefly this morning. Verse 1, you're running this race. And it's a race that you're supposed to be running with great endurance. And then he moved on to talk about and tells us about how to endure through this race. Setting our sights on Jesus. Throwing off those things that weigh us down. Pull us down. Not necessarily even sinful things. But but things that just take up all of our time and distract us from the time that we ought to invest toward our heavenly goal and uh, and our heavenly home. Those things that just weigh us down and encumber us and the sin of faithlessness that besets us. We talked a little bit about that as well. Becoming more of a person of faith is a desire, obviously, of God. So in verses 4 through 11, he talked about that. How do we become more faithful? Well, it isn't through having all the high mountaintops Uh, experiences in life, but it it often comes through discipline. And so he goes on to talk about the discipline that we have through Christ or or with God in order to establish us, to to train us, so to speak, to become a stronger individual in faith for God. By that, by training, by this uh, discipline that we receive from God, God keeps us fit, always learning, always growing, and always becoming closer uh, to him as a person of God in faith. And then we recall in verses 12 through 13 of this text how it is it's described we need to strengthen our three vital body parts. Remember the idea that's set forth there? And if you weren't here to, to, to remember this, then look there in your text and you'll notice in verses 12 and 13 there are those who have hands that hang down. There are those who have weak knees. And this is speaking in the spiritual sense, obviously. Uh, and those who whose feet have departed from the path that leads to life. And so he says in that text, take note of those things and don't fall victim in this way. Think seriously about your spiritual walk, he is saying. So that makes the sense then that as we go into the text that we're, the section of the text that we're looking at today, that we see it's talking about watching out for the perils that exist. Listen, if we got to have hands that are strong, knees that are strong, and feet that stay on the path, we better know where we're going. And so he begins to describe for us how to know where we're going, where it is we want to go. And, and more in the sense of not just heaven in the broad term, but in the here and now, things that we can apply to know that we're walking in direction of God and that heaven, uh, that uh, home of heaven heaven in the future. So verses 4 through 17, let's notice this text together. Uh, again, if you don't have your Bible out, really encourage you to do that. Read along with us in this, in this section of the text, okay? Strive for peace without, uh, with, uh, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In these verses, we can see uh, a couple of things. Just take note of, and you know, it'll, uh, the reason I even bring it up is because it describes for you where we're going this morning in, in our look at this text. 
There's two positive commands in verse 14 that we're given. There's three negative warnings that we're given in verses 15 and 16. And then down in verse 17, a serious consequence that results from a failure to overcome worldliness in verse 17. So we're going to look at those points this morning as we, as we move our way through this text. I'd like, I'd like for you to notice, first of all, there, first of all, there in verse 14, how, it, how the author of Hebrews urges us to strive for peace with everyone, he says. That's an important way of walking without worldliness. How to overcome worldliness. Strive for peace with everyone. Notice this word, strive. It means to pursue or to chase after it. To, to, if you think in terms of, uh, of uh, maybe, a, maybe a word picture for us, hunting it down, right? Uh, to, to be the person who has a desire to overtake it, to capture it, to obtain it. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then look at what he says, the bond of peace, eager strive. We're getting the sense, right, that this is something that we, that we want to take in, that we want to get hold of, that we want to possess as our own. The world of Paul's day, just as is true in our day, considers peace impossible without war and dominance. And I want you to notice there's a difference that's talked about here. Nowhere in this text are we looking at the idea of crushing the opposition having dominance over the opposition. I'm reminded of how God, through Paul, teaches we achieve this godly peace. We do overtake it. We do captivate it or have it in our life. In his closing statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, you may remember where Paul says, Finally, as he's coming to the end of that letter, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Conform, uh, uh, comfort, the one, uh, comfort one another. Then he says, Agree with one another. And then look at that. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I say to you that peace is only temporary if we seek to choose it through dominance. It's true in the home, it's true in the church, and it's true with our God. His desire has never been to dominate anyone. His desire is to make a choice, to have an option. He gives us that option. God teaches real lasting, joy-filled peace can only survive through our acknowledgement of love. Not only in our life, but coming from Him to begin with. Restoration, comfort. Not only in our life, but also portrayed toward others that comes from our God. This is different, but it results in unity, lasting unity, not the kind that's temporary until someone rises up in rebellion. It's permanent unity. Paul would therefore conclude, Romans 14 verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Isn't that a great passage? I want to say, if you don't have that underlined or somehow noted in your text, you really should. That's your purpose as a Christian. It's God's purpose as he delivers it to us. Isn't that great? Think about what he's saying there. Don't you ever just want sometimes peace? Well, this is the way you have it. 
It is also the way that we eradicate worldliness from our lives. It's a stark contrast that the Lord makes about having a holiness rather than a worldly attitude in our, in our living. I want you to notice there as well the second point. Positive command, pursue holiness. Some versions use the term sanctification. Both of those really are displaying or, or describing the same thing. Separation from what is common and profane. From what is, there, in other words, saying unholy. What is unholy? The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about worldliness. Don't be worldly. That's what he's saying. Don't pursue the things in and of the world. Don't be worldly. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So now he's describing how we understand what worldliness is. is. Is the apostle talking about don't own a car, don't have a house, don't have electricity, don't wear nice... What's he talking about? Don't wear nice clothes? That's not the idea, is it? What is he saying? You Look at the key word there. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, it's hard to distinguish sometimes between what we love and what we shouldn't love. He's saying, think about that in your life. Think about that with way of application to the way that you're living, the things that you're, uh, that you're elevating in your life. Because if you elevate the things of the world in your life, then you cannot elevate the Father in your life. You may recall the passage that tells us we can't love two masters at the same time. Verse 16, he goes on to say in this text, for all that is in the world. Now he's going to describe worldliness in a different term. The desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says that's not from the Father, but it is from the world, and the world is passing away, and the lusts of it, or the desires of it. The things that the world places such great emphasis on are simply temporary, he's saying. And they look at that as though it's something permanent. But the fact is that it isn't permanent. It is dying. It is decaying. It is going away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You notice he takes the things of the world and says that's all passing away. Then he talks about you and me. But whoever, there's permanence there. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's speaking of a value system in our life. A value system. And yet I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, as you well are aware of, just as I am, we struggle sometimes deeply and greatly with that. We get the concepts. But I admit to you it is awfully hard not to struggle with worldly values. It's easy to find ourselves compromising with those values. I want us to remember what Paul says over in Romans chapter 12, looking there at that, at that, uh, at that passage, beginning in verse 1, as he's explaining holiness is achieved by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. You want to know how to really live? Present your bodies holy to God. That's what he says. That's real life. That's good life. That's enjoyable life. And as we've already seen, and he makes note of the very first word of our text, that's peace. Not only with God, but with others and with self. There's peace in that. He goes on to say, uh, this, 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 this is not some kind of a one-time action, is it? 
He's speaking in terms of perseverance and, and persistence from day to day. And so he continues on not being conformed in verse 2 to this world. The Greek word conformed there means to mold according to a specific, a good pattern. But be transformed, to be changed from one thing into another thing over the process of time. And how is that accomplished? He says, by renewing or the renewal of your mind. That by testing, there's that whole thing about discipline again, right? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. And it is uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Holiness is not an attained state of perfection, is it? It is a a continuation or process of one's relationship, conditioning, and growth in God. While the world is desperately trying, and what I'm trying to say is, while the, while the world is desperately trying to look less like God, those who are conforming themselves to the holiness of God are desperately trying to look more and more like Him. There is a stark contrast between the two kinds of people that the writer of Hebrews is describing here. He's not finished. He's going to keep going. That process starts and it continues in the battle of the mind. We might say the battle of the heart, right? And it works its way out to every extremity of our body. It creates who we are. And so we pursue peace and we pursue holiness because without these, he says in our text, going back to Hebrews chapter 12, without those two things, no one will see the Lord. No one will see him. And as we've seen, God makes clear in a variety of ways, frequently, throughout the New Testament, how true that really is. Those cross-references we made seemed like a lot of cross-references there, didn't it? Those were just the tip of the iceberg. God talks about it in a continual fashion throughout the scriptures. He desires holiness. All right, so look there at verse 15 as we continue on in our text. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That speaks to our, uh, our appreciation and our, our attitude of having gratitude. I'm not saying that just because two words rhyme. We need to have an attitude that really is thankful to God. Our gratitude to God is seen in this verse. Having favor, understanding his unbelievable kindness toward us. It takes us to a whole new level of desiring holiness, doesn't it? Why do you desire to be holy? Because of God's grace. Because of God's favor that you recognize is undo you as I should recognize about myself also. We all recognize as God's people that we're not worthy to be called his children. Yet that is what he calls us. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is undue favor. That's the grace of God at work. This takes us to a whole new level, doesn't it? When we truly appreciate the effect of God's grace in our life, we can't help, we can't even resist a desire to conform more to what He's created us to be. 
No one has done for us what our God has done for us. Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 4, God being rich. Think about that word for a moment. Rich. Luxuriously lavish. Rich. In mercy. As Bill Gates has more money than he can count or ever spend, our God has more mercy for us than we could ever comprehend. And He gives it liberally. To those who don't deserve it, to those who shouldn't have it. But He does it anyway. Look at what He goes on to say there. Because of that great love that He has for us, that's why He gives us His grace, because He loves us. He goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. By grace, he just repeats it. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In whatever way, brothers and sisters, in whatever way God has made us holy, It is because of His doing and not our own. It doesn't mean we didn't want it. And it doesn't mean we didn't strive for it. But what I'm saying to you is it made no difference that we did except for His making us holy in those things. It all starts with God. In whatever way we come to resemble Him over time, desire to be more of who He wants us to be. It is only because of His work in us that that's been made possible. When it comes to our holiness, you and I, we just can't claim credit is what the Hebrew writer is saying and what the Ephesian writer is saying. It's not our doing that has made this all possible. In fact, he goes on to say there, Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are something that's created by God with a purpose. And he put his craftsmanship into this, his artistry, his skill. That's what's made all of this possible. And so we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Do you realize we didn't even prepare the things that we were created for? He even did that. He created us and He prepared us by His own work and by His own grace. That's a pretty awesome God. Maybe you let the world convince you at some point in time of your life and you've been living with the idea that you really don't matter and that you aren't really worth all that much, that God really doesn't care about you and have a purpose for you in life, just kind of floundering out there. I believe that we can all agree based on what we've looked at, what God has said in in just these two verses that we've looked at, that that truly is not the case. That that is a lie of the world that people don't matter. And that God doesn't care. It's just not true. We ought not to believe it because you see when we do, that's worldly. That doesn't come from the Father. Don't forget your access to God's grace. 
Let it change your purpose from worldliness to holiness. Paul would remind, of this, uh, remind us of this in uh, Romans 5. Looking down at verses 1 and 2 of this text, <clears throat> he says, Since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, now look at this, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Listen, you and I, we don't just have a little piece of it somewhere. It's not tucked up somewhere and we, we can get it if we really hard, you know, we're really going to look for it in a, in, a, in a difficult and hard way, we might be able to find it. Look at what he says about the grace. He says you're standing in it. It's all around you. You have full access to the grace, the undue favor of God. We are privileged to be firmly rooted in God's favor. Man, let's not take that for granted. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Don't take that for granted. Remember what it means to you. And then he speaks of something called the root of bitterness in all of this. How we don't want that to spring up and cause trouble. You notice he says not just cause trouble, but cause trouble for many in that text. Remember how we talked about how as we get older and we grow in the faith, when we have a, an issue where we fall, and sometimes we do that, how most often we realize that it's not just oneself that is suffering in that kind of condition, but that we, you know, we fall like for a mile and take out people with us, right? <laughs> Remember that? Well, here he's talking about how it is that we need to think about the root of bitterness. That, call, that can rise up and, and it can grow and produce fruit and, and, and cause trouble more than just for oneself, but for many. Bitterness can grow in our lives and become a case for trouble and defilement. And we can become bitter over almost anything in our life. You ever notice that? The older you get, the more I realize that. I get bitter over the dumbest things. <laughs> I think we can do it when we're young, too. What does bitterness come from, anyway? We can become bitter over a husband, a wife, occupation, a co-worker, brethren, health, loved ones, a loved one's health. Most of the time, bitterness finds its root in what? I would say, maybe I'm right if I say self-centeredness. I think that's the root of bitterness. In nearly every area of life, we can get to be bitter over something, someone, some situation. It's not a, a coincidence that the Hebrew writer uses the term here, root of bitterness. To the Hebrew people, you see, they would have recalled places like Deuteronomy chapter 29, and in verse 18, I'd like for us to turn over there and just notice that verse briefly together. God warns in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, Beware, lest there be among you a man, a woman, a clan, a tribe, whose heart is turning away. Notice the progression. It's like, it's like uh, uh, Psalms 1, 1, right? Who's turning away today from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, of those nations, not the nation of God. That's worldliness. That's what he's describing. Someone turning away from God to turn to, to love more 
the world. And then notice he says, Beware lest there be among you a root, here's, here's the quote, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And what does this root produce? Look at verse 19. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, the word of God, blesses himself, not God, self-centeredness sets in. He blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. A root, brothers and sisters, is something that has life, no doubt about it, but it's below the surface, right? It's below the surface. Eventually, it will grow and bear fruit if it keeps living, if it isn't uprooted. And so if we keep producing the same bad fruit, listen, over and over again, we, we cease trying to fight it, we cease trying to be the person God wants us to be, we just give way to this continual sin. We need to realize that is a symptom of a bad root that has taken place in our life. And it's got to be eradicated from growing. It's got to be killed. It's got to be pulled up. It's got to be thrown out. Our text says, see to it that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. It's just not possible to embrace the values of the world and the values of God at the same time. Uh, and our overall life will bear fruit of which one is winning. Which one we're cultivating under the soil. Just as we've seen the positive characteristics of Hebrews chapter 11, so now we come to a point where we see a negative that has fulfilled and allowed all that we've just taken uh, into note to take place in his life. And that is Esau. Verses 16 and 17 gives us the sample of rejecting what is good at the root and deciding to be worldly rather than holy before God. Here in Genesis chapter 25, I'd like for you to turn over there. Uh, we'll just note verses 29 through 34 of that in just a moment. But in, verse, uh, in Genesis 25, we're introduced to Esau uh, as he deems, to be, uh, deems himself to be unfaithful, though he may not see it that way at the time. He becomes an unholy person before God due to his willingness to trade his inheritance, his God-given grace, if we could call it that. He didn't deserve it, didn't deserve to be the firstborn, didn't deserve to have the birthright, but it was given to him. He could choose to do something good with it or throw it away. He chose to dispose of God's grace, his inheritance in his life. And he did so for one simple meal. Just as we are to see that no one comes short of God's grace. And just as we are to see that we not let bitterness take hold of us, causing trouble and defilement within us. So we're also to see that no one be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought with tears. A 
birthright gave, as you might already be aware, special privileges and advantages in the family. There was only one of these per family, and it wasn't so much an item as it was uh, a thing, something that was given that was intangible. But it meant a lot. In fact, it meant everything within a family. It meant that this person who was given the birthright would take the, the, the place of his father within the family, whatever patriarch that was. It meant that he would be given the authority and the responsibilities of running the family as, his, as the previous generation was given responsibility. And he would receive a double portion of an inheritance. And when people lived to be 100 or 200 years old, that was a pretty big inheritance, wasn't it? By that time in life, right? And the, the most important thing about all of this is that he would be, be given a prophetic blessing. Come from God through the patriarch, the father, to the one who was about to receive the inheritance. And that was the most important thing that he was being given. The blessings from God, a future and the point that the writer is making here about Esau is that he sold himself to the lust of Jacob. And that's why it uses this term sexually immoral. It's not necessarily, maybe he was, maybe it means just what it says right there, that he was a sexually immoral and an unholy man. However, we don't have record of that that I could find in the scriptures. But what we do have is this, this word used as an illustration before God. What God saw as, Jake, as Esau began to become the person who sold himself out for what was of no value whatsoever. It meant nothing to him. To sell his birthright. To sell the grace that God was bestowing to him in his life. Maybe you remember the, the context of all of this. We'll just read it briefly. I, I know we're quickly running out of time. But I want you to look at verse 20, chapter 25, verse 29 of this text. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And therefore his name's called Edom. But then look at verse 31. Jacob said, sell your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Ladies and gentlemen, that's like a person headed for heaven that says I'm about to die. What use is it for me to think about heaven? It's so ridiculous that the man would think this way. And that's the writer's point. Even over in Hebrews, but here in this text of Genesis also. Recognize how foolish that is. He says, I'm about to die, so what use is it that, this, that God has bestowed grace upon me? What am I going to do with that when I'm dead? Oh, it's so short-sighted. And Jacob gave Esau, well, he says, swear to me. So he swore his birthright and gave it to Jacob, sells it off to Jacob. Sold his birthright to Jacob, the text says there at the end of verse 33. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, now notice this, he ate, drank, and rose up. Does that remind you of any place else in the Bible? Where they ate, drank, and rose up to play? While Moses was getting the will and the word of God from the mountain, the people rose up after having ate and drank to do what was worldly. And that's exactly what Jacob was doing here. Thus, e I mean, e what uh, Esau was doing here. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
I hope that we understand why the writer is using that word, sexual immorality. It is the word or the definition of a man who sells himself to the lust of another. And that is exactly the description of Esau. He sold himself to the lust of his brother over the inheritance, the grace of God given to him. It wasn't just a birthright he was selling. It wasn't just simple privileges that he could live without as he grew older. We're seeing it in very dim light if we see it that way. But the point of the writer is that he was setting himself apart from the grace of God. That grace that was given to him through no merit of his own. Just simple favor of God bestowed upon him. And it meant everything to the family. He gave it away for a bowl of soup. His holiness is what God is talking about in that text. And it's what the Hebrew writer is picking up on and making point of when he says, don't be like that. Think about holiness in your life. Don't be, don't be this, this man who was defiled through a lack of understanding about the will and the grace of God in his life. Esau was a vile person who took for granted everything that was being given to him from God and he did nothing with it except give it away. Remember God's grace in your life. Don't make it moot. I hate the way that it says he just couldn't find a way to repent. We don't like to talk about sealing our fate before we're dead, do we? This passage says we can do it. We can become the person who so tramples under their foot grace of God that there's no more repentance left for us. And you know what happens when there's no more repentance? There's nothing left but condemnation. Destruction. The Hebrew writer likens this account to our not selling ourselves for what's temporary and of little comparative value. Because when we do that, sometimes we can be sorry that we don't get the reward, but we're not sorry. We can't find a place in our heart to be sorry for what we've actually done. And the way that we have mistreated the God who gave us the grace that we stand in. He severed the nerves that connected him with his God and he seared them over. And though he sought to rectify the problem with his father, you can read in chapter 27 of how it was that he sought for a blessing with tears. Surely there is a blessing for me. And all he received was a curse. His father wanted to give him a blessing. But he couldn't. He had severed his relationship with God. Now, you see, the point is not that we can get ourselves in a position to where we cannot connect to God anymore as much, though that is a point. The greater point is, don't go there to begin with. He was sorry that he couldn't get back what he'd sold. He'd given up everything for nothing. He came as he was older to realize that. But even then, he wasn't sorry for what he did. 
didn't really repent. He wished he could. His problem was he wanted the gift without being holy. And you can't have one without the other. Let's not fall into that same kind of defilement, right? That's the point of the Hebrew writer. The implication is clear for us. If we fail to press on in peace and purity, if we become entangled and worldly in our actions, we'll end up in the irreversible condition of Esau. And we don't want that. Worldliness places the things of this world above the things of Christ. And if we love those things, we just can't let go of those things. We've got our hands filled with those things, holding them close to us. How in the world will we ever hold close to the God who gives us grace? You see, I've got to let go of this stuff a little bit. Loosen up my grip on those things so that I can actually take hold of what matters more. What really has eternal results, whereas worldliness just simply will never fulfill long-term what I'm looking for. If we can't do that, then we'll lose everything that God has to offer. To be a person of faith, we must pursue peace with God and others. We must be seeking for holiness in our lives. You see, not just an outward representation, but it comes from, I want to be one with God. I want to be holy as He is holy. And we have to shun worldliness in order to do it. So I ask you the question this morning, which one sounds better to you? The fate of Esau who became worldly and lost everything that was really important or the faith of all of those we read in Hebrews chapter 11 who through faith sought to be holy like God is holy? Which one sounds like a better end? Now then we take that and we, we transpose it onto ourselves. Well, if I've decided what one sounds better, then which, way, which one am I actually living for in my life? And that matters, right? That's what we're seeing. It all, it all matters. It matters to God. You're not beyond God's eternal embrace and salvation if you understand and are convicted by thoughts like that. That still means we're alive. It still means we have not yet severed the nerves that connect us between God and ourself. What God wants is to give blessings. God wants to see us more and more like Him through the eradication of worldliness in our lives. Let's, uh, let's close in a quick prayer and then we'll offer the invitation together. We thank you, O oh Father, our God, our Savior, for your grace, having done for us what we don't deserve, having helped us through grace, and we are able, therefore, to show grace to others round about us. To be less worldly, to make for peace, and to live lives of holiness, set apart and dedicated to you above all others. Help us, Father, to see the value of our salvation. We are in such debt to you, but yet you forgive all of that. And you embrace us, and you take us. And you make us into something that is worth something before you created with purpose by your goodness by your provisions 
Help us not to be allured by what is worthless, common, profane, to hang on to those things as if they really matter. We thank you for your words of caution this morning, helping us in our lives to walk with you through faith and in your grace, like those of our spiritual ancestors. And Father, if there are more as Esau that are thinking the way that he's thinking today rather than thinking the way that you would have, those who are rejecting holiness, we pray, Father, that this is the turning point, that you'll grant repentance unto a renewed salvation. You've met our needs and you've shown us what love looks like and we pray that you help us emulate that uh, to take time to consider how you have loved us and having given us your only son, you've bestowed upon us more grace than we could ever imagine and that we might not take that for granted and we might think holy about that and holy in our lives as we stand before you influenced by you with your purpose in mind. It is through Jesus that we ask it. Amen. If you are in need of starting this faith walk that we've been talking about today, by simply coming to God in submission, a desire to walk with Him, you can do that this morning. Turning away from sin, you see, not being a person who craves worldliness but rather a person who craves holiness with God. Being baptized for the forgiveness of the sin that you've committed to walk with God in a way that you've not been able to walk with Him in a very long time, maybe since the time you came, became accountable in your life. You can do that this morning, and we would really encourage you to think seriously about it. There's no better time than right now, right here at this place, no better place than with those who love God and who love you. You'll never regret becoming a Christian. That doesn't mean there won't be hard times, but I say to you, you will never regret your walk with God. And if you have yet to take that step in your life today, let us help you in doing it. While together we stand and as we sing.